pray as we come to God's Word. Our Lord, we remember uh, that what you have said in the Scriptures has come to pass. That these are not just words on a page, these are events recorded in history. And yet they're more than that. These are the words of life. And so Lord, help us to take them as such. Help us to believe. Lord Jesus, it seems that we can't actually get this unless you meet with us personally right now. Lord, so have your hand upon us. Lord, meet with us. Lord, have your hand upon me. Speak through me. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this text. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. I love it. I love it because their hearts burn for Jesus. That's what we need today. That's what you need. You may not have realized that that's what you need this morning on Easter Sunday, but that is what you need today for your heart to burn for Jesus. Notice they recalled together how our hearts burned within us while he talked to us on the road. My hope and prayer is that Jesus will talk to you personally and that your heart will burn for him. You don't have to do anything, actually. You just have to listen. See if it burns. Let's find out. Uh, This uh, chapter actually deals specifically with the heart, the human heart. Now, the heart is not what we might ordinarily think of, sort of a, a, something pumping blood throughout our body. It's not a, just a biological term in the text here. And it's not what we might think of in our modern day as um, the emotions. In the Bible, the heart is the centre of our uh, motivation. It's what we believe. It's our centre of belief. That's what we're looking at today. And I just want to point out to you this um, language of the heart is in many places in our text. Verse 4 talks about the women being perplexed, language of the heart. Verse 5, frightened. Verse 11 talks about believing or not believing. Verse 17, they're described as being sad, the disciples. Verse uh, 21, they're described they're describing hope. Again, language of the heart, language of belief. In verse 25, when Jesus speaks to the disciples, he calls them slow of heart. They don't quite get it yet. Their heart doesn't believe yet. They're slow to pick things up. And in verse 32, we get the burning heart. The burning heart. This is the language of the heart today. So let's have a look at our text. Let's have a look at the heart of the resurrection. Now, uh, The first thing I want to explore with you is the doubting of our hearts to the reality of the resurrection. I mentioned before this this refrain that we use, he is risen, he is risen indeed, but do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? Has it made a difference on your life? Because if it hasn't, you don't believe it. You might say it, you might attend But the reality of the Bible is, in fact, all of the teaching of the New Testament is that if you believe this to be true, it will radically and permanently change your life and everything about you. So there's more than just words to say or ideas to consider. It is deeper than that. But our hearts do doubt it. 
Now, one of the reasons for that is culturally we don't take it very seriously. I was picking up my daughter from kindergarten in the last week and they were listening to the Easter special of Guess How Much I Love You, which is a beautiful story about bunny rabbits and how much they care for each other. And they were saying, and they were saying uh, verbatim, this special time of year, they're talking about Easter, that we celebrate the coming of spring and all the new life that it brings. And I thought, these poor children, it's not spring, it's autumn. Just confusing them. It's a school. It's an education institution. Come on. What are you doing? And of course, Easter is not about the coming of spring or autumn if you're in the southern hemisphere. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that means. That's a bit of a joke. But culturally, not that important. Eggs, bunnies, holidays, everything else more important. Traditional Christianity... That's a has-been in Australian society. But if it's true, it's much more than that. Now, we see in our text that we're actually brought into the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, we don't even hear in our text that they actually see him, although we learn in John's Gospel that the women do see him. But in Luke's Gospel, we find that they are perplexed about what's going on. They, these women, they turn, we find out a bit, little bit later, uh, there's a group of women who are Jesus' disciples. They turn up, they've come to the tomb where Jesus has been laid in since the Friday. They're, they're early in the Sunday morning, they're there to see what's happened to him. They go to the tomb, there's been an enormous stone which soldiers had rolled in front of it so no one could get in. It was supposed to be guarded. The women turn up to pay homage to him, to grieve, to mourn for him. They were taking spices so that they could anoint his body, his dead body. They're expecting death. They're expecting a body in a tomb, and that is not what they get. It's empty, the soldiers are gone, and they are, we find out in verse 4, perplexed. They're confused. They don't know what is going on. They can see things, but it doesn't make sense to them. And I would say that is pretty common today. People are perplexed about Christianity. Perplexed. You know, like, does it really mean anything? Does it really have a bearing on our modern life? What about my, you know, 40 hours a week at work? What about my parenting? What about my relationships with people? How can the message of someone who hung on a cross and then an empty tomb symbolizing that he is risen from the dead, this Jesus who appeared to up to 500 people at once and then ascended into heaven, how can this make an impact on my life today? Fair question. Fair question. And so it leaves many people perplexed, confused. But Jesus doesn't leave us in our state of confusion. In fact, he won't leave us in our state of confusion. If we are open to him, if we go seeking after him, he will not leave us in our state of confusion. Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. If you even have the tiniest seed of belief in your life, so it's 99.9% .9 doubt and 0.1% interest, he'll take it. He'll take it and show you what it really means. And that's what happened to these women. They're there, they're interested, they're looking, 
They're perplexed about it. And God sends angels to speak to them. They were frightened and bowed their faces down to the ground as these angels spoke to them. Now, this actually is good for us to know because the Christian story is not just self-explanatory. right? Most people in the Western world know of Christianity, do they not? Most people in the Western world know of Christianity. It's, it's supposed to be called Christendom or was Christendom. It was founded on Christian values, principles and beliefs. And yet now we think of it as a past tradition. So it's not just the information itself. Something must go deeper. But that's good for us to know. Because just like most important things, they don't just happen in our lives. We have to investigate. We have to dig deeper. We have to explore. Like the women in the text, we need someone to explain these things to us. And that's what happens. So in verse 5... So in verse 4, these men in dazzling apparel appear. We realise that they're angels and they appear and they tell a couple of things to the women. Firstly, they say that Jesus is alive. He is not dead but has risen. And they remind them that Jesus had already told them that the Son of, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. In fact, Jesus told his disciples this verbatim many times. And so the angels just reminding them what they'd already heard, that Jesus was going to die, but he was also going to, be, to rise from the dead. Now, this is helpful for us because... Notice that they're reminding, they're speaking this news about Jesus over and over again. Jesus told them many times uh, before he died, this was going to happen. And then after he's died and risen from the dead, the same message again. The same message again in verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise, It's it's an audible message. It's something that you hear and then believe. Now today, Western secular culture, we tend to think seeing is believing, right? And so most people, when they think about Christianity in our culture today, think, well, I can't see it, so it's hard to believe it. The problem with that is that we believe in a lot of stuff that we cannot see. We're talking language of the heart, right? We're getting down to beliefs, We believe in love, for example. Can you see love? Does the world around us give us a sense that love should be part of the natural order of things? Does natural selection, evolution, give us a sense that there should be love in the world? No. Natural selection, evolution, and a sort of atheistic, secular worldview tells us that might is right. The strong oppress the weak. The rich oppress the poor. That's how it ought to be. And in fact, for most of human history, pre-Christianity, that's how everyone expected things ought to work. And yet somehow, through Christianity, a seed worked its way into humanity that we believe that there's a better way. No, we shouldn't oppress the poor. No, we shouldn't oppress the weak. We should lift them up. We should care for them. We should have better values than that. That came out of Christianity. 
the ethic of love is something that you cannot see and yet we all believe it. What about justice? What about justice? We can't you know, just see justice the way things ought to be, can we? You can't just go to someone and say, well, you ought to be living a better life if you don't believe in something that you cannot see. And so, yes, we do hold beliefs today, not by seeing them. We've heard something, we've captured an idea, and we've begun to believe it. And Christianity is exactly the same. It's through hearing this message and letting it sink down into your heart that you believe. It's actually just a response to the good news about Jesus. Now, we, as we go through our text, we actually see uh, that, you know, that the angels have proclaimed, re- reminded these women that you know, Jesus is alive. He'd already said this was going to happen, so he is alive. We learn in John's Gospel that they actually meet Jesus. They thought he was a gardener. Turns out it was Jesus. Uh, and they run back to tell the other disciples, Jesus is risen from the dead because the other disciples are hiding in fear. They're afraid that if the authorities killed Jesus, that they're next. So they run. They run to tell them. It says uh, in verse 10, uh, tells us who they are. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But then in verse 11, but these words seemed to them, as in the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They did not believe eyewitness accounts that Jesus is alive. Eyewitness accounts that the tomb is empty. Eyewitness accounts that angels spoke to them. They just didn't believe it. It seemed to them an idle tale. They are in fully-fledged doubt. Now, let's just pause for a minute. Why on earth would Luke, who's a biographer, recording all this, record that? That even Jesus' closest disciples didn't believe. Why would he record? That's not a very compelling story, is it? At least at first glances. And in fact, if we learn, learn a little bit about the first century, we learn how even more ridiculous it is. In the first century, the testimony of a woman wouldn't stand up in court. That is, if you were to get witnesses in court, you could not get the, uh, the testimony of a woman to testify in court on any matter because in a patriarchal first century, first century culture, a woman's testimony wouldn't stand up in court. They were considered unreliable. Now, we don't believe that at all today, and yet that was the case then. And so why on earth would Luke record women being the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection? So uh, we learn, I mean, the Da Vinci Code and kind of books of that um, ilk have taught us that there could be a giant conspiracy, that Christianity and Jesus' um, death and his, particularly his rising from the dead could be this giant conspiracy sought to control people. And yet, if that were so, if Luke was writing a really good fiction, he would be trying to convince people by giving them the best possible data and the best possible, most compelling case, the best witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, he would not have included women and the men doubting. Would he? The only reason 
logically that we are given in our text for the women being the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, even though the testimony wouldn't hold up in a first century court, is that that's what actually happened. That it's just straight history. These are just bold facts for us. Now that's important. That's important because if this is true, if Jesus really is risen from the dead, and you believe it, then you're going to take all of it. All of it. You might not like Christianity that much. You might, have, you might like some bits, you know, the love, the peace, the encouragement, the comfort, you know, the, the, talk, the talk about charity and care, you know, caring for the vulnerable, the poor, the marginalised. But you might not like the Christian ethic around sex. You might not like the Christian ethic around divine judgment, hell. You might not like parts of the Bible and like others. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, Lord of heaven and earth, then you have to take everything at his word. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. And so really, don't worry too much about the other ethical questions. Let's get sorted whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Because if he did, that changes everything else. Um, a 17th century mathematician uh, and a scientist, Blaise Pascal, he made this wager. It's known as Pascal's Wager. And it basically goes like this. If Christianity is true, you've got everything to gain. But if it's false, you lose nothing. However, if it's true and you don't believe, then you lose everything. Do you get it? If Christianity is true... And so if, if you believe in Christianity, if you take it on, you follow it, and it turns out to be true, well, then you've won everything. You've got eternal life. You, you, everything that's said in there is true for all eternity. It's good. And if it's false, well, you've lived a good life, I guess. You've had hope in the darkness. But if it's true and you don't believe it, well, you're in a whole lot of trouble. Now, that was Blaise Pascal being a, a logician, mathematician, a scientist, kind of laying it on in a logical way. But actually, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't load us up with guilt to believe. He just gives us plain facts. But notice that no one really believes at this point, except one guy, Peter. Peter has his own story. Peter had been utterly humbled he denied Jesus three times. So he was at a place where he was willing to take anything. And he did. And he believed. But for the most part, the disciples were not convinced. And so let me put this to you. Mere logic will not convince most of you if you are sceptical. Mere logic will not convince most of you if you are still sceptical. I believe it to be 100% true. In fact, I don't even need to believe it. It is true. It's not just logical, factual, historical. Every credible historian in, the, in uh, society today believes that Jesus was a real person and they have a very hard time disproving the reality of his resurrection. So hard facts. But that's not quite enough. We need a bit more. So let's keep digging in. So I've had a look firstly at the doubting of our hearts to the reality of the resurrection. But I want to tell you that Jesus, secondly, is patient in his heart toward our doubts. He is patient 
in his heart toward our doubts. If God wasn't patient, we'd be in big trouble. But he is. We learn, in, we learn from verse 13 onwards uh, that Jesus turns up to a couple of disciples. We get a different part of the narrative. But Luke skips from one scene, he goes to another. There's a couple of disciples. We learn that one of them is named Cleopas. They're on their way to a city, a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem, we hear in verse 13. But we're going to find out a lot about how Jesus is patient towards us doubting people. So notice the disciples are on their way. They're going away from Jerusalem. And then we find out uh, in verse, uh, a little bit later in one of the verses here, that they were sad. They were confused. They were trying to work out what was going on. Verse 17, it said they stood still looking sad to one another. These disciples of Jesus had learned that their leader was dead. Everyone pretty much had witnessed it. Those that were afraid had hidden. Some of them were there, some of them weren't. That had happened a couple of days ago. And now they're walking away from Jerusalem trying to work out what on earth to do with their lives. They're perhaps going in a different direction than they should be. But I want you to know that Jesus meets them wherever they are. And that's true for you and I. No matter what direction that we're going on, Jesus is willing to meet us where we're at. We, let's keep having a look. In verse 14, it says, They were talking with each other about the things that had happened. They were talking about Jesus. I said earlier that even if you have just a seed of faith, just a little bit of interest, Jesus is interested in that. Just a tiny bit of interest. He'll take it. He'll take it. In fact, these guys are talking about Jesus, about his death, about what's happened. They're talking about some people have perhaps spotted him alive. They're still confused. They're wondering if their hopes had actually been dashed. They're not willing to let their hearts be hurt again, and Jesus turns up. A seemingly innocuous discussion about Jesus leads Jesus to draw near to them. Talking about Jesus can be a dangerous thing. You know, it happens in workplace all the time, education all the time, but what happens when Jesus turns up? What happens if through that conversation... You're getting his attention. What happens that, you know, through the things that you've heard in your past life and they come to mind again that Jesus is on to you. He knows what's going on in your life and he's come to meet with you. It's interesting because Jesus asked them, asked the disciples, and they don't know who he is, right? They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. But he asked them, well, what, what are you talking about? And they say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, it's happened. Like, everyone knows what's happened. Are you the only one that doesn't know what's happened? And they explain a little bit about Jesus, how they had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, we find in verse 21. They had hoped, past tense, that Jesus would be the one to fix everything for them to redeem Israel, to put God's people in their proper place. But their hopes had been dashed because he was dead. And some people were reporting him to be alive, but 
Like the other disciples, they thought it was an idle tale. They didn't believe. Their hopes from God had been dashed because he wasn't giving them what they wanted. The question is, what do you hope that Jesus will do for you? Or what have you hoped that Jesus might do for you or Christianity might do for you? This is where religion actually gets very difficult. Because some of us come to religion and we're told that if you believe enough that you'll get healthy, wealthy and wise. And yet when we get sick, when we get, you know, our finances don't work out that well and when we make poor decisions, we think, well, I've got to throw in Christianity too. Now, when we're told by religious figures or we read, see the televangelist, they said, if you give some money, you'll be blessed. And then we give the money and we're not blessed. And we wonder, well, what's happened here? We feel like our hopes have been dashed by religion. If we're not living a good life or when we start to experience chronic illness or someone we know is experiencing chronic illness, we think, man, maybe this isn't actually true. Our hopes are dashed. What do you hope that Jesus might do for you? Just think in your heart for a minute while I'm speaking. What do you hope that Jesus might do for you? Do you think he's interested? Do you think he cares? We'll find out. So we've had a look that, you know, talking about Jesus and thinking about him might actually lead him to meet with you spiritually. But then we realise that Jesus is not immediately recognised. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. We don't actually know when Jesus is working in our lives all the time. In fact, I would say we rarely know when Jesus is working in our lives. It may not feel like anything's happening at all. That's actually part of the faith journey. Um, We've had some friends uh, fall pregnant and they've been trying for a very long time recently. And they say after becoming pregnant, they still find it hard to believe. And so they have to keep like, going over the information that they've heard. They have to keep looking at the tests that they've got back to say, yes, we really are pregnant. But it feels hard to believe. Even though they know it to be true, it feels hard to believe. They, nothing feels like it's changed, and yet everything has changed for them. It takes several times of going over the information again and again for it to really sink in. And it's the same way about believing in Jesus. People, for the most part, don't immediately go, I believe it. When they hear the message, either young or old or in between, they don't generally immediately go, I believe it. When they hear it the first time, it does happen on occasion. But for the most part today, it doesn't happen immediately. And that's actually what happens here. These disciples have heard this message about Jesus dying and rising from the dead, Jesus being the Lord of heaven and earth, you know, the Son of Man coming on the clouds with glory. Jesus is God in the flesh. They've seen the miracles, they've seen the evidence, yet they still don't believe. They're looking, but they're not seeing. Now, this is important for us because actually believing takes time. It takes investigation. It takes serious consideration. And it takes generally someone else explaining it to us. 
It's unusual, but we hear it from time to time that people you know, go to a hotel room, they pick up a Gideon's Bible and read it and become a Christian. And the Bible is accessible for us in our own language, so we can do that. But for the most part, it takes many interactions, many readings, continual investigation looking into it to actually work out whether we believe or not. But be warned, if you do, Jesus might turn up. So Jesus is patient. Right, even when we you know, just start talking about him and we don't really believe he's willing to turn up. Even though we don't immediately recognize him, he sticks with us. But now we see in verse 25, Jesus speaks directly to these disciples discussing him. It's taken some time for it to get to this. Jesus asks them what they're talking about. They pretty much repeat the same events that have gone on themselves. And in fact, we find that Luke, in this section from verse 31 to 35, keeps repeating the message over and over again. You know, uh, in the, the angels witnessing uh, to the, the women just outside the tomb, they say these words, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. Jesus asks these uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus what had happened and they say you know talking about cons- uh, verse 19 concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was mi- a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified and possibly that he's risen from the dead it's the same message once twice and then Jesus says it again He says it in verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In fact, in the shortest form, he summarizes it. Three times they are getting the same message. It keeps getting repeated for them. What does this mean? This means it takes time to sink in. This means like the excited first-time parents They keep looking at the information and going, yes, it's really true. It takes time for this information of Jesus' death and resurrection to sink in. But notice that the disciples still don't get it. They still don't yet believe. They've got all the information. They've got all the data. Jesus himself is speaking to them, although he's not been recognized by them they've got all the data jesus himself is speaking to them and they still don't believe isn't that interesting as a i grew up in a christian family so my uh, parents were uh, christians and they taught me to be a christian as a child and i sort of walked with christianity as a young person for my whole childhood i believed i was baptized as a baby And uh, I could talk the talk. I could talk the talk. I went to Sunday school. I was around Christians a lot. I read the Bible a little bit as a child, and so I pretty much got it. Then towards later high school, I actually decided that, well, I actually realized that Christianity wasn't all that popular amongst my friends. So as a religious person, I decided that Christianity wasn't for me. And so I decided that I'd walk away. I told my parents I didn't want to go to church anymore. I wasn't interested in being at church anymore because 
A, it was boring, and B, my friends made fun of me because I went to church. And so I can skip those two and just have the good life myself, which is a pretty common story in Australia. So having rejected Christianity, I began to live life for myself. Do whatever I wanted to do. God was out of the equation. I didn't care anymore. I began to... I have to, you have to live for something, so I, I lived for the approval of my friends, the approval of others. If others looked well upon me, then I would feel good about myself. That is how I began to live. Isn't it interesting that someone can hear the message? They can understand it, they can comprehend it, they can speak it back to you. So there's comprehension happening here, and yet there's no belief. It hasn't gone from the head to the heart. But something happened. When I was in early high school, a friend invited me to a Christian, like a young person's group, a youth group. Invited me to go along. And I said, no. So who wants to hang out with Christians? I've rejected that, right? Like, that's, that's in the past. Got the new me now. But this person, thankfully, was persistent. Asked again. Eventually, I said yes. I turned up to this group of Christians who were meeting together. And I thought, well, I actually, I actually knew everything that they knew. In fact, I knew some of the answers better than them. something different about these people. It seemed like this same news that I had heard of, I knew of, they really believed and so it had changed their life. They weren't perplexed about it. They hadn't had their hopes dashed by believing in God and it not being enough. They believed. And it changed and they had this sort of joy inside of them, and not just a you know, happy, clappy joy, but real. They believed. It was enough for them. This news that Jesus had died for the forgiveness of their sin on a cross in history 2,000 years ago, and that he really had risen from the dead. He is risen indeed. They believed it. And gee, that really troubled me. Because I thought, I know exactly what they know. I'm better than some of them. And yet, I don't have what they've got. That's the thing that began to bother me. And that's the key to Christianity. It's not the information. It's believing it. But notice. Notice the patience of Jesus. Notice that, like me, I was on a path on my own path, and he interrupts me. He sends someone to speak to me. Notice the patience of Jesus with these disciples. They're talking about Jesus and he's with them. What does Jesus say to them? He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, we might take this as a rebuke, but I see this as a kind and loving truth. I'm right in front of you and you can't even see it. This is a God who sticks with people. This is a God who is patient, even in our doubts. He'll meet with us on whatever path you're on, even if we believe that God hasn't done enough for us. He was willing to meet with us. So we've seen the doubting of our hearts to the reality of the resurrection, what that looks like. Look at the patience of Jesus towards our doubts and particularly towards these two disciples. But now we need to look 
finally, and thirdly, how the resurrected Jesus makes our hearts burn for him. I mentioned Blaise Pascal earlier, you know, Pascal, Pascal's wager, you know, the, the, the logic of whether you ought believe in Christianity or not that is quite compelling, but it doesn't convince most people. But this is what happened to Blaise Pascal. As a, um, as a young man, uh, he invented what was a, to be known as the first mechanical calculator in the 17th century, in the 1600s. Uh, he invented the hydraulic press and the syringe, so he was very intelligent, very good at what he did. And after his father fell and broke his hip in 1646, uh, Pascal was confronted by the witness of two Christian doctors, and he himself became a Christian. So he had an interaction, some Christians shared the gospel with him, and he believed it. But his Christian life was lackluster. It just like never, never had fire to it, never had a spark. In it. He believed, but it just didn't really change his life. You see, he wasn't particularly compelled by the faith, though he believed it. It influenced his life, but it could by no means be called his life's driving force. But in 1654, something happened. And Pascal was transformed from an apathetic religious person into a man who was blazing for God for the rest of his life. What happened? Well, actually, no one knew what happened. It just seemed like he changed overnight. And in fact, Pascal had a chronic illness that plagued him most of his adult life and had an untimely death at the age of 39. But something had happened. Something had triggered a change in him, even though he had a chronic illness and died very young. He became joyful and excited and changed because of his belief in the resurrected Jesus. After his funeral, a servant accidentally discovered a note from Pascal's personal journal that was sewn into a hidden compartment in his coat. The piece of paper was dated 23rd of November, 1654, between 10.30pm and 12.30am. And it said, Fire! God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob... Not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is like the ramblings of a man changed. What happened? He believed. It became true to him because Jesus met with him. Before we get to where these disciples' hearts were changed, let's have a think about Jesus for a moment. All these events that have gone on that these disciples were actually talking about, considering, and they were talking about in front of Jesus. They actually invite Jesus to stay with them for dinner. And they still don't get it. They still don't believe it. Even though Jesus has been right in front of them, he's been explaining to them through the scriptures that he's the main point, that the Christ is the main point of the whole Bible. They still don't get it. But then as we look back, and we remember the words of Jesus on the cross, we begin to get an idea that this Jesus who is patient with them 
This Jesus whom, if you really believe in him, makes your heart burn for him. His own heart was blazing for them first. This Jesus went to a cross because he would rather that he would die for his sins than you would. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of justice. And he brings both together on the cross. God will deal with sin. Every sin. Particularly the sin of unbelief, of rejection of your creator. He says, if you will... If you want to live your life your own way, I will give you free will and free choice. You can have it. And that means eternity without him after you die. We call that hell. It's real. It's scary, but it's real. It makes sense. If God is real and rejecting him, then has eternal consequences. But Jesus said, I would rather take that eternal consequence for you than you have to bear it. So he went up to a cross. He took the penalty for sin. He died in our place. This, goes, this looks back at this sacrificial system of the Old Testament that said in the temple that if you knew that you had sinned, you would take an animal to the temple and have it die on your behalf and its blood spilled so that you would not have to die for your sin. Jesus gives that its full meaning. He's saying, I am the sacrificial lamb of God. I will take your sins on myself and die for them. That's why Jesus cries out the words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was forsaken for us. He was experiencing hell on the cross for us. But the third day, Jesus rises from the dead, showing us the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, showing us that Jesus is the immortal God, showing us the way the truth and the life is in him. That through believing, you will have the life that Jesus has, eternal life. That death is just the door to eternity for you and I. Jesus' heart blazed for you on the cross. And so now we look to where they discovered that Jesus was with them. It says, they urged him strongly, verse 29, saying, stay with us, for is it toward evening? And the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The last time that Jesus had broken bread with his disciples was at the Last Supper. He said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. The next time he broke bread with them was here. They heard his words and they remembered. Notice it's through hearing. They'd seen him, they'd been around him, but when they heard his words, when he broke bread with them, when he came and had a meal with them, you know, in the ancient Near East, one of the, the best signs that someone loves you is that they will take you in. It's, it's, it's hospitality, right? They'll take you in and have a meal with you. Jesus is taking the front foot for doubting people, for people who don't get it, 
for people who are perplexed, for people whose hopes have been dashed, for people who are sinners, he takes a further step in and he says, I will sit down and eat with you. And they get it. They get it. They realise it was him. Verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? At this point, and this is what happens when you become a Christian, you look back on your life and you start to interpret everything from what God has done. He burns the doubt away. Because you realise that he's been with you all along. He's been with you even though you didn't recognise him. He's been guiding you toward him. He's been speaking to you though you didn't get it. He's been opening your eyes to the scriptures though you are slow of heart. He has been patient. We look back on our lives. And for the Christians in the room, look back on your life and look how Jesus has been at every point caring for. Showing his hand in our lives. In the book, um, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy, it's actually my favourite book in the series. And uh, there's a, a young uh, boy called Shasta. And he is the, the main character. He's a, um, the sort of foster son of a fisherman. Uh, and we, we learn earlier that he sort of just turned up in a boat one day uh, just alone on a boat. There was a man that was with him who had died and uh, the fisherman rescued him. But he treated this boy like a slave. Anyway, one, one day this uh, boy learns that his, his foster father intends to sell him to another man. And so he does a runner. He ends up on a wild adventure as they do in all the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, he, he is quite disappointed with his life, actually. Because even though he's on this great adventure, it feels like his life is one failure after another. You know, so it started with his foster father who treated him like a slave and was trying to sell him. And then he just feels like he's constantly being chased by literal lions. People betray him. People abuse him. No one cares about him. He ends up in worser and worser situations. And now he finds himself alone at the end of the story and in the dark. And he hears a large voice. And he hears some breathing. And this is what he says. He says, Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all the dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and about the beasts that howled at him in the desert and he told about the heat of thirst and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost in their jail, in the goal, sorry, when another lion chased them, wounded Aravis, and also how very long it had been since he had had anything to eat. He goes on and on about his story of woe. And then the large voice says, I do not call you unfortunate. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion 
who forced you to join with Arabus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile or so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that when it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at night, he was able to receive you. You see, Jesus has always been at work in your life. If you're coming to the point, you're at the point you have believed in him. He's always been there. But what the disciples did when they believed is they looked back on their life and they realised that there is a God who loves them, who is patient with them, who meets them in their doubts, even though they're slow of heart, they're foolish, they don't believe. Yet it is when he broke bread with them, he showed them that he was the one who gave his body for theirs that his blood was spilled so that they might have forgiveness of sin. And that is the God that we remember this morning. That is the God who invites us in to him, to believe, to have our lives change. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for the words of Jesus. We want to thank you for the word that changes us, that as we let it sink in and we come to believe, Lord, that you would move our lives, that you would change us, that you would transform us, that you would make us your people. Lord, I pray that this word would, this seed of the word would find good soil in our hearts, that we might believe and have you, our risen King, as Lord and Saviour. Amen.